before we start the show, I just wanted to reach out and say that if you are loving listening to the truth description as much as we are loving making it, please subscribe to the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio, to name a few. And come check us out at www.thetruthprescription.com to get more insights and info, because the truth will set you free if you let it. A lot of my Instagram posts are meant to be inspirational. Some say motivational, but you can motivate others, but people have to find motivation within. Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people. Wherever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gallus, and each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears. Now let's get into this. Come on. Good people. We are back. Episode number 47. And today I have the pleasure and honor of interviewing Dr. Ian K. Smith. Hey, hey. Ian, how you doing, man? Good. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Appreciate you coming from Chicago. I always love to do the in-person interviews. Mm-hmm. You know, so much better. Energy's always better. So, Dr. Ian, you all know him. He doesn't need much of an introduction. Celebrity Fit Club, The View, is correspondent for NBC News, anchor contributor to Health Watch, which is a nationally syndicated show on the American Urban Radio Networks. And the brother's a prolific writer. I counted 16 books, but I could be off. Is it, is it 17 or is it 16? Or is uh, it 18? It's 16. <laughs> it's Seven, 16. 17's in April. 17's in April. Yeah. All right. And is 17, which, what's the title of that book? The new one's going to be called Clean and Lean. Clean and Lean. Okay. Yeah. 2019. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, many of those books are New York Times bestsellers. Most are, you know, health related and wellness related. But his most recent book, The Ancient Nine, explores, of all things, ancient societies, ancient secret societies at Harvard, which is a semi-autobiographical or fully autobiographical story of a young black man who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, who made his way into one of these societies and the experience, which is essentially Dr. Ian's experience. So we're going to get into that as well. We like to say the other side of the tracks. The other side of the tracks. Yeah. They used <laughs> exactly. to say the wrong side, but that has connotations of the other side of the tracks. The other side of the tracks, <laughs> or the different side of the that's tracks. That's right, that's right. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in Brownsville, so I'm, I'm very, <laughs> very aware of the other side of yeah, the track. yeah. Dr. Ian, you know, my listeners who have listened to my show know the premise, but I'm just going to repeat it for anyone new. Our major issue, our major problem is that we ignore truth. Mm-hmm. And why do we ignore truth? Well, because it's uncomfortable, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not fun. And once we actually accept the truth, we can actually move on past certain barriers and become more successful. So I usually start with personal or professional. I give you a choice. What I like to do is to give us a story. You're, you're a natural storyteller. You're a natural communicator. So give us a story around a truth that you ignored, either personally or professionally, that once you accepted it, you were able to move past and become more successful. When I was a medical student at the University of Chicago, I was a third-year medical student. And for those who don't understand the medical school system, as a third year, you're doing these rotations where you're going through different disciplines. It could be pediatrics with kids. It could be surgery, the ER, whatever. So you're going through these different rotations where you are training for a certain period of time, two or three months in a particular discipline, and you go to the next rotation. And so I was doing my rotation in OB-GYN, obstetrics and gynecology. I'd already decided I was going to be a surgeon, but even 
though, as you know, you decide what you want to do, you still have to go through everything. So you have a, a broad training. And I was doing this rotation, doing very well, I thought, in this rotation. And I got called into the office of one of the doctors, one of the professors on service, who was an African-American man. So I was thinking it was actually going to be a call into his office to be a mentor and because there aren't many African-American physicians at that level. And particularly at the school I went to, there were very few African-American physicians. Sure. It was Dartmouth, right? I went to Dartmouth Med School for two years at the University of Chicago for two, two years. years right. So this okay. is the University of Chicago. Okay. And so he calls me to his office and he says to me, Smith, we need to have a talk. <laughs> so, well, that's, that. that wasn't a good start. <laughs> no. And so basically he says that you're overdressed and you're carrying yourself above your station, basically is what he was trying wow. to say to me. Mm. And <laughs> so I'm looking at him and I'm trying to figure out, first of all, what is he really saying to me, number one? Number two, how do I keep myself in check? Because I tend to be very direct and very outspoken and, and not intimidated by anyone. And number three, how is my reaction going to impact the grade that I get on this rotation, which is important for my larger transcript? So in a very short period of time, I'm trying to weigh all these things in. And I asked him to explain, like, what do you, what do you mean I'm overdressed? I mean, I dressed very well because I felt as though that as a student, you wanted to look the part. You wanted to be professional looking. As an African-American male, I particularly wanted to make sure that I was presentable and that any stereotypes people may have, hopefully me dressing well would disarm and disengage people of those stereotypes. So I really was working hard to look very good. We would say, well, I may wear to church sometimes, okay? Right, so right, right. Uh, I wasn't wearing a tuxedo, but I was wearing <laughs> right. something I could go Shirt to church tie, in. Right. Yeah, Wing tie, tips, yeah, right. yeah, nice shoes, make sure they're polished. So after, you know, he and I had this back and forth, and his answer was very unsatisfactory. And all that I could figure out was that here was this uptight guy who had assimilated into the system and either because of hateration towards me or because he had been selected by his colleagues as the mouthpiece because he was African-American. So it was best that he relayed this message to me, whatever it was. And none of it really made any sense to me. And I've always been an independent thinker. And I made a quick analysis that this was pretty stupid. However, I also realized that given the power structure that this guy and his colleagues had complete control over my grade in that rotation, and I needed to do well in that rotation, even though it wasn't going to be my specialty, my discipline in the future, as you know. Yeah, they look at that. Every, they look at everything. And if I had a fail or a low grade in that rotation, what happened? So I decided, you know, thank you very much for sharing that with me. In that moment, you were able to say that. In that, that. moment. Thank you very much for sharing with me. I, I'm dressing this way because I think it's important for me to put my best look forward and I'm doing the best I can and I appreciate it and the meeting was over. The truth that I realized about myself was that I am not someone who can operate well in a hierarchy, period. And I have a very <laughs> difficult time being subordinate to people who either I don't respect, who I don't think are particularly smart, or who I think they're okay, but why should their position alone dictate or dominate my position just because they got there before I got there? And so I realized very early on that being in the hierarchy of medicine in a traditional sense was not my path and that I would not be able to keep my mouth shut or always say the, the politically correct things to those who I felt as though were saying things that deserved a strong rebuke. 
<laughs> okay. Especially in surgery. Surgery Especially is in surgery. supremely higher. Supremely oh, higher. Good Lord. You know, I had one surgeon sit me down and say, Smith, you're never going to make it. I mean, who does that to a student? Oh, it you know? happens. And, and had I not been who I was, I was very tough as a kid. I was very confident. I was very accomplished in what I had done at, in my academic career. So his words were like water, you know, off a duck's back. But had I been someone weaker, someone not grounded, someone who didn't have a strong family background, that could crush a kid. And so I realized that while I love medicine, that being in the traditional structure was not going to be my path forward. Did you, this is sort of, I'm getting ahead of myself, but, you know, I did my research and I couldn't find where you did a residency. I did. You did do a residency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So I started okay. off, off in orthopedic surgery. And then when I was doing ortho, I started doing TV and doing the media. And then I left orthopedic surgery and did rehab, physical Phys rehab. Physiatry. Yeah, physiatry. Because Interesting. I matched in physiatry initially. Interesting. Yeah. So the physiatrist allowed me to be able to do my TV and media career and still do residency. So I ended up completing my residency in physiatry. But I started off in orthopedic surgery. But I also started doing TV when I was a surgical intern. And the two were very strange bedfellows. So I, I, made a, <laughs> I made a career decision that was not very popular with a lot of people. Who's that, a lot of people? Well, my family, my okay. friends, the people in the hospital thought I was crazy. I matched an orthopedic surgery. It's very difficult to match an orthopedic surgery, particularly in New York City. Matching, for those listening, means that you're accepted into a program of training. So just because you want to do a certain specialty as a medical school graduate doesn't mean you get to do it. You got to go through a whole lottery system. And so I got this very, very highly coveted and desired match into orthopedic surgery in New York City at a great hospital. But I just felt like something said to me that, back to truth, the person who I was, as much as I love the OR, and I still miss the OR to this day, the smells, the sounds, the organization, the sterility of the operating room, I miss it. But as much as I loved all of that, I realized in my experience as a medical student, that I was probably not going to do very well in a system that wanted me to subjugate yourself. Yeah. Simply because it's the system. I just don't work that well in that, in that kind of environment. Yeah. That, you know, it's funny. That's one of the reasons I went into emergency medicine, because it was probably the least hierarchical with the most amount of flexibility and knowing that when I got out, I'm not tethered to a hospital per se. I mean, I have to work in a hospital, but I don't have to be there. You can go anywhere. Right. I can go First anywhere. First of all, you can work anywhere as an ER doc. Right. But number two, when you leave the hospital, you're pretty much out I'm of the done. hospital. You're I'm done. done. Nobody's your calling shift is me. over. When your shift's <laughs> right. over, your shift's over. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Exactly. But yet and still with all of that, I still had and have similar feelings to what, what you're talking about. So it's, it's really interesting. So was that personal or professional? <laughs> That was probably both. So we'll, <laughs> we'll take it as a hybrid. How about that? <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Talk a little bit about how, you know, your approach to fitness mirrors your approach to life. You know, you, you had this quote on IG that said, you know, I might not be as good as you, but I will outwork you. <laughs> Talk about how you infuse that and in, in, in what you do on a daily basis. I love my IG, by the way. <laughs> really? You well, can tell. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I feel like, you know, I don't do anything. On IG, that's personal in the sense of, you know, no family. Like family, kids. No, I like don't that. do that. Yeah, yeah. And social media, that's not my thing. Listen, people can do what they want to do with their families. I'm not telling you how to do your family or IGs, but I feel like someone who is a public person like myself, my kids and my wife have a right to be in control of, of how they are public facing. And just because I'm a public person, they don't have to be. And so I have, I made that commitment way early that I would keep them away from the spotlight. If they want to 
be public they can. And they've all said to me, nope, we like it just like this. And I don't blame them. I'd be the same way. My career is very public and I, I'm not ashamed of it or I don't regret it, but I tend to be a very private person, which is, is, is kind of, sounds like an oxymoron that a public person who wants to be private, but, but I do. And my family is very private to me. With my family, I'm not Dr. Ian, I'm dad or I'm Ian, and that's how it should always be. But anyway, you know, I feel like you know, my IG and what I say is, you know, I am a very motivated person. I always have been. And I like to work. I like to work. I like the feeling of work. And I like, I like what work brings me. And it feels better when I work for it. That's just how I am. Now, sometimes people have made me work too hard. <laughs> Uh, and I'm not afraid of hard work, but too right. hard means not that I can't do it because I did it, but it means that people put obstacles in my way to reach a certain result. But, you know, my statement that I may not be as good as you, but I will outwork you is that's how I've, I've won the game is that I will work and work and work. And I try to impart to people who follow me, particularly those who are trying to do weight loss transformations, that you have to work anything you want in life. You got to work hard at it. And it's, it's, and it tastes much better when you work hard. It feels much better. It really does. And, you know, when someone just gives you something, it doesn't mean you still can't enjoy what they give you, but when you work and get it, then while you're enjoying it, you're also remembering all that you went through to get there. You know, my grandfather used to always say, you know, I grew up on the other side of the mountain. That's a deep statement. I mean, you know, he's been to the mountaintop, but he was on the other side and you never forget being on the other side of the mountain and the work it takes to get up the mountain. A lot of my Instagram posts are meant to be inspirational. Some say motivational, but, you know, I don't think you can motivate others, but people have to find motivation within. So I like to say inspirational per se, like that, though yeah. to some it may be motivational, but I don't assign it that. But I try to be inspirational and, and let people know that, you know, while I'm writing these books and I'm giving you kind of various prescriptions to change your life and to be healthy and to enjoy life, I work too. And I want them to see that I'm you know, it doesn't come to me naturally. I've got to be in the gym just like you. So, you know, what bothers me is when people say one thing and they do the other. You know, you got a cardiologist who's telling you to lose weight and, to, and have better behavior. He's outside the, outside the hospital, 40 pounds overweight, smoking a cigarette. I mean, that's, that's horrific. It's horrific. Those people that's should be fired. That's an oxymoron. Yeah, and they should be fired. <laughs> they should not be in charge of guiding and leading people. That's not genuine. Yeah, and that's not leadership. You it's lead not by leadership. example. You right? better believe it. So September 18th, you released the Ancient Nine, a book about secret societies at Harvard. Talk a little bit about the 25-year journey of actually publishing this book, because I know you started this back then. And why do you think this book is important today? All my books, the 16 books, this is the most autobiographical by far. And people who read this book will learn something about me that they did not know from my other books or my TV appearances. This is about a kid who comes from the other side of the tracks who is mysteriously invited to join one of Harvard's ancient elite societies, secret societies, they're called final clubs. And he unknowingly and unwittingly joins this process, which is called the punch, where he is almost like other students, they are in a tryout to join the secret society. And, you know, I've been writing this book for 25 years. One, because when I first started writing it in college, I didn't know when I was going to publish it. I knew I wanted to tell this story at some point in my life. I just didn't know when. So I started writing it in college because I wanted the geography of campus, the feelings that I had as an African-American male in the secret society. I wanted all that to be fresh. And so I wanted to preserve that. So I started writing a lot of it then. So I had it on the page. 
And then as the years progressed, I added and tweaked and modified and continued to research the story. But I started back then so that the, the bones of the book were well cemented back when I was an undergrad, because I want you to go through this process like I went through this process, where you don't know what's going to happen, where you're nervous at times, where you feel guilt that as an African-American, you're joining a secret society at Harvard, an elite society that for years has kept blacks out and women out. And so here I was getting ready to join one, and I felt very conflicted about it. I had friends on campus who could never join one of these secret societies because they weren't invited. So I've been writing it for a long time because I wanted it to really encompass how I felt then and also kind of all the research I learned about Harvard and these clubs. And also, it took so long because these diet books and health books have been so successful. And, (laughs) you know... I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful to God for that. But, you know, publishers, I guess, are like record companies. Absolutely. You know, they want you to keep doing what the, what the hits are. Or the, or the film industry. Or you the know, film industry. Part one, part, part two, two, part sequels, three, right, four, right, five, right, six. Right, right. Yeah. So, so, you know, these diet books have been doing fantastically well. Think, I'm thankful to the fans and, like I said, to God for it. But my creative passion is also fiction. And I like telling stories. I like watching stories. I'm a big consumer of stories. And so I wanted to tell this story. And I finally just said to my publisher, listen, this is what we're doing next. (laughs) I've reached the stage in my career where I have some cachet. And so I said, this is next. And so now was the time. And the good news is that, you know, it's been optioned to become a movie by already. uh, Already. It's been optioned. Wow. So a knock on wood. I'm excited about it. I know it's weird for an author to say this. I love this book. I read it myself sometimes, different sections, and I'm as lost in the stories as if I didn't write it because part of good storytelling is making the reader feel like they are there and to stimulate all senses of the reader, your smell, your sight, your sound, the touch. All these senses need to be stimulated, and there are different stories in this book. It's not just the big story. Obviously, the big arc is this kid joining this very elite society. Spencer Collins. Spencer Collins that was, you know, membered by people like John F. Kennedy, President Kennedy, the Roosevelt's. Matt Damon. Matt Damon was in my club. <laughs> right. you know, so, so that's the big arc. But the smaller arc is this kid from the other side of the track that's at this very elite college and dealing with that. He's on the basketball team. He has a love interest who works in the dining hall. He falls in love with this girl who wants nothing to do with him because he's at Harvard. And so, and she thinks that he's one of those, she thinks he's one of those stuffy, stuck up Harvard kids and he's not. He's actually from the same kind of mold that she is from but she doesn't realize that so he's fighting for her it's just so there's a lot of stuff in there that i think makes it a fun story well yeah i i really enjoyed it i mean i didn't i read the first three pages and i can tell people that are listening to us right now that you know when it opens up it leaves you in a state of bewilderment that's all i'll say <laughs> you you're like what the is going on and uh it's a great intro you know all i think all great books they want to open and make you you know, there's an actual, and I know there's an actual technique to this, because in writing my book, talking to certain authors, there's a technique to, to turn paging, to, to being a turn pager. And I definitely started to get that sense as I was reading it. So much success, man. I hope that it sells as well as the, the diet book so they can do a sequel to this. <laughs> well, I tell you, if people pick up the book and read it, we ha- so I have this contest online. We have a group on Facebook called The Ancient Nine. So go to that page. And if you can solve, there are three questions on the page related to the mystery. If you can solve it, you win $5,000 cash. No one has solved it yet, but... No one has solved it yet. No one has solved it. They've come close. Because you talked about that on on your interview with... with, Sway? Sway. Yeah. And at that time, it was $2,500. So you've you've upped the ante a little bit. We upped it a little bit. (laughs) 
We're up, up to sometimes, a little bit. Sometimes money can be incentive. I like to have fun, first of all. Exactly. And, and, I mean, I get no yeah. benefit from it, but you know, I think it's a it's a fun little mystery thing for people who try to solve these three questions as they relate to the book and the history of of the ancient nine. So I have I have a, a wide range of listeners, and a good percentage of them are artists that listen to my show. And you're a prolific writer. When you say artist, what do you mean by artist? Artists meaning writers, creators, musicians, filmmakers, mm-hmm. those those type of okay. folk. So you're a prolific writer. Talk a little bit about your process, you know, your writing process, how you get the concept, you know, from the concept to your outline to actually getting it published. First of all, everyone tends to do it differently. So there's no one right or wrong way. It's whatever works for you. I am constantly writing nonstop. And I write a lot in my head, literally. What I'll do before I sit down to whether it's a piece of fiction or nonfiction is I will map out the book in my head. And I will hammer away at it and I'll do it all the time. I'll do it in an Uber heading between meetings. I'll do it on an airplane before I fall asleep. You know, I'm always constantly thinking about an angle or a story or something like that, or something will spark. I'll see something like last night I got in town late. And so I went to this diner and saw this old dude with a hunched back reading a New York Times in quarters, eating this huge piece of chicken. And I just felt like, wow, what a great character. Like, what a great character that guy could be. And I could see the scene. And so I'm constantly writing and thinking and observing. I love to observe. And so for me, I first start with a concept, with an idea. I have this, so I have this new series that I'm working on, which is a private investigator named Ash Kane, who used to be on Chicago Police Department, used to be CPD. He left under kind of certain circumstances, and now he's a PI. And he takes on very few cases in Chicago. And so... I'm creating this series, this Ash Kane series, where this P.I. is a little bit of a throwback, but he's just kind of wise aleck, but very smart, irreverent, who can't help himself but want to make things right. When he sees wrong, he can't stop himself. Even if, it, even if it's none of his business, you know, he just, he's got to do right. He's got to make sure that wrongs are, are righted. Anyway, so I'm working on that. Now, what I'll do is I'll think about it, I'll map it out in my head, so that when I get to my computer to write, I already have, it's just about flow at that point. You know what I mean? And this goes for my nonfiction also. It's about flow. So, and then I, I'm a zone writer. So I hit zones. So something will spark in me and I can sit down in one session and write 12 pages. I can write 25 pages in a day. I've done that because I'm in a zone. And it's just my body, it's hard to describe, but my body feels like it's just a vessel. Everything's coming for through For the word. It just comes yeah. through me. You know, there's not much work for me. And I'm a great typist. I'm a very fast typist. So I sit down and I can beat the keys and I'll have 20 pages. I also tend to be a very organized writer. So I'll put myself, now when I'm, in a, when I'm zoning, I'll put myself on a schedule of how many pages I want to write a day, at least, minimum. And then I try to exceed it. I'll print out a blank calendar and every day I'll mark 10, 11, 12. That's how many pages per day I did. And that just kind of inspires me and keeps me going. I also make sure that... Whenever I'm done writing, I never stop writing when I run out of ideas. I always stop writing when there's more to tell, where the idea is still fresh, so I know that the next day I have a place to start. So I don't go to empty. I get down to about a quarter of a tank. So when you feel yourself getting there, you stop. I stop. I know I got something to pick up on. That's a great tip. Okay. And that, so I've never had writer's block, ever. You know, it's a weird concept to me, and I know people have it, and it's a real thing, and I feel bad that people have that, but... but <laughs> I feel bad for you, but... Yeah, uh... <laughs> yeah no, it's tough. No, I, right. I, I can't imagine sitting down to a blank page and being paralyzed. That would be 
a bad feeling as an artist and creator. But for me, it's my writing is is zone like, and I am constantly doing it. And you know, I just was thinking, you know, we went to this year we did the French Open in Wimbledon, and we were in Wimbledon in London. We were on the train waiting, waiting for the train to Wimbledon, which is by the way an awesome experience for those who like tennis or just like anyone like a sporting event, big sporting events. But you take the train into Wimbledon, and I got so much done on that platform. Because the ideas of a book I was writing back home, and I just took out a piece of paper, folded it into eighths, and just started writing bullet points. And then, then I can take that. I don't write the whole story. I write bullet points. Mm, like I can outline almost yeah, like. I take that. I take it back home. And then I can take those bullet, bullet points and embellish them. And then I have paragraphs. And then it just flows. And then after you finish with your manuscript, then you take it to your editor. Yeah. One of the mistakes that young writers do is they try to edit themselves too much. So... Spend all day writing, and sometimes before I go to sleep, I'll read some of it, but I won't heavily edit it because you can't go forward. The editing process is a whole different ballgame, right? And so get it out first. Get it on the paper. Get it in the desktop. And then when you go back to edit, then you can start, as my son says, start doing surgery on it. You know what I mean? (laughs) The Ginsu. Yeah, Yeah, then you start doing surgery. But people, people who try to do surgery while they're trying to also create that doesn't work. And so, so I will every day or every couple of days reread what I've written, do very light editing, mostly grammatical stuff like that, spelling. And then when it's done, then I'll sit back and I'll print chapter at a time. And then I'll heavily edit the chapter. And then when I feel like the manuscript is in shape, then I forward it to my editor and say, here you, here go. you, go. Here you go. Speaking of your son, you know, this process requires a lot of alone time, right? The, the writing process. How do you carve that out, you know, with your family responsibilities? Do you do, like, I've, I've heard some writers, they, they get up and write from, like, 4 to 6, 4 to 7, take the kids to school, then write, you know, some during the day, that kind of thing. You know, obviously, this is what you do, so they know this is important. How do you sort of manage that, you know, being able to get that focus time in? It's easy for me, actually. I write at really, when I start writing, there is no clock. So, so I literally will be writing from 2 to 5, 2 to 6. You know, I write all kinds of hours. No, a.m. Oh, you're saying a.m.? Yes, I'll write. Wow. I'll I'll write over the graveyard shift, okay? And then I'll take a nap, wake up, help to get the kids ready for breakfast with my wife, take them to school, then come home, maybe take a nap. I like to nap. I'll take a nap. Nap That's important. Yeah, very important. (laughs) And people don't do enough of it, by the way. Yeah. But the Europeans do it right. A lot of European countries believe in naps and give people time to nap. But anyway, it's the next book. (laughs) (laughs) How to sleep right. Uh, Right, But anyway, uh, and then so then I come home and then I can work while they're at school or when I'm on a trip like this, I write a lot on the plane. I write waiting for planes. I write in my hotel room because I'm by myself. So I'm lucky that I'm able to write in very different environments and it has not required time away from the family. The only time my writing will impinge on family time is if I'm under deadline and I got to get, you know, the copy editor has sent me. So I hand the manuscript manuscript and the copy editor will look at it and then make suggested changes, typically punctuation, continuity issues and send it back to me. And I have a deadline when I have to get that back to them so that the book can keep going in its production process. But that's that's really if I'm if I'm against a deadline like that. So you, you took a little bit of a risk releasing Ancient Nine. What do you say, risk meaning you're exposing all of these things that are supposed to be, you know, secretive or mm-hmm. hidden. What do you say to first-time authors who are concerned about releasing their books for fear of hurting or exposing someone they're close to 
And, you know, just as a side note, have you heard from any of your, you know, Harvard brothers who were in the club with you that had some feedback for some, we'll say, focused feedback for you on the book? If you have a great story to tell, whether it's a non-fictional story, a true story, or whether it's a fictional story, and you think that you are compelled to tell it, and you think that there's an audience that would like to hear it, I think that you have to very cautiously weigh the importance of getting that story to people versus whose feelings you might hurt. Now, if you are purposely being malevolent about something or trying to malign somebody, that's different. Or if you're putting people's names in there and you know that it only is going to bring, that's, that's a different kind of calculus you got to do. But I think my story, let's talk about my story. So my story is based, you know, on a secret society at Harvard where people are sworn to an oath. And I struggled because I did not want to write a book that was a hit piece on my club because my club was fun. I had a great time. I still have friends from there. It was a great experience. Even though there's some there's some things about the club I don't think are right. The exclusionary nature of the club based on race and gender, I don't think is correct. But I also didn't want to write a nonfiction expose hit piece to say, you know, this is what these guys are doing. And, you know, (laughs) that was one kind of book. Some people may want to write that book. That wasn't my book. I decided to make it a fictionalized account. So I used as the premise my true experiences. And then I added some fictional elements in there. But it's based on on my true experience. I think that as a writer and an artist, you have to decide how you want to package the information and how you want to distribute the information. For me, telling the story could have been done as a nonfiction book behind the scenes of a Harvard final club would be very gripping, by the way. But but how I wanted to tell the story and the way I wanted to tell the story, putting it in a novel form was better for me. And so I think that to answer your question, you know, more succinctly, I think that every artist has to decide whether or not the value of telling the story is greater than the potential, potential, there's no guarantee it's going to harm someone, than the potential harm it may do or what it may jeopardize on a personal level. In other interviews, I've heard you say that you're an artist, and that struck me because in the last couple of years, I've had to accept that about myself as well. When did you know you were an artist, particularly, you know, coming through this very left brain, you know, medicine? When did you accept that about yourself? Was it a moment? Way before. Mm. I knew as a kid. You knew as a kid. Okay. I knew at nine that I wanted to be a doctor. And I also knew at nine that I was a very creative person. And that in some way, my life was going to be involved in story in some way. Now, my real influence as far as storytelling really comes from being in college. So about my first year in college, I was home and my aunt, who did not go to college, didn't even finish high school, is a voracious reader. And she would read and read and read. And I just found it a very interesting paradox that someone who didn't finish school was also such a bibliophile as she was, right? And so she told me one time, she said, she knew I like books too. I've always loved books. She said, you got to go pick up this book. It's called The Firm by John Grisham. Okay. This is before the, this is before the firm became the firm. Yeah. Okay. It was a little paperback book. In my hometown, there was a little discount store that you could buy books for like 30% off, 40% off. And so we used to go and we used to, she would recommend a book. We had like our own little book club. And so I bought The Firm per her recommendation. And I got to tell you, even now, I still have that feeling. You talk about as far as page turners are concerned. Like, I don't care what literary critics say, that is a masterpiece in the sense of the technique. 
I found myself trying to read at stoplights, you know, <laughs> I didn't want to leave the house without it in the car. I'm telling you, I wanted it in case I had a few minutes because the story was so grip gripping with Mitch McDeer. And I knew then after I finished that book, even while I was reading that book, I said, geez, one day I would love to be able to create story, to have, to engender and to, to prompt the kind of emotionality that I felt reading that. It was so cathartic. You know, you were scared one minute, you were excited, you were laughing, you were angry. There was so much that was going on that I felt personally as a reader. And I knew then, reading that book, that one day I hope to be able to publish story in some form that I could hopefully get people to feel the same way. And so when people read The Ancient Nine, and I've gotten several emails from people saying that they couldn't put it down, that they were up late at night, that is the greatest compliment you can pay to me is to say that I couldn't stop reading this book. I love that. My last question is about, I actually thought of this question on the way here. You have a lot of great relationships, not just, I'm not just talking about your family, but personally. I mean, mm -hmm. you and I know, know people that you're great friends with. You have this relationship with the Rachel Ray show, this relationship with Strahan and Good Morning America. And these are relationships that have been going on for a long time. Even my wife mentioned to me this morning, she's like, yeah, I used to see Strahan and Dr. Ian in, in the meatpacking district back in the day. <laughs> You know, when I first moved to New York and when I, and I was 20, in my 20s. So, you know, these are long-term relationships. Just talk a little bit about maintaining relationships, whether they be business or personal, and, you know, maybe some tips for folks. I think sometimes that's difficult for people. They meet people, especially when you get older. They meet people and they're not really sure how to maintain, maintain a relationship. Let me start answering this, this question this way. The other day I was in my writing cave and for some reason, I was searching something on YouTube. I was looking at something. And on the side, you know how sometimes it populates suggested videos on the side? There was a video, there was a Robin Williams on Johnny Carson. Now, I know this is really different for African-American guy my age, but I loved Johnny Carson. Okay, Johnny Carson did, was not, I was not his demographic, but I watched Johnny Carson re religiously. I thought he was the funniest guy next to Richard Pryor and Red Fox. I thought they were three of the funniest human beings I've ever heard. And Johnny Carson was a tremendous showman. I mean, if you look back at his stuff, you can tell why he was the greatest, I mean, at, at that genre. And so I'm sitting there watching Robin Williams, who was a comic genius too, by the way. Robin Williams, the minute he got on stage, he just went berserk. <laughs> and Johnny Carson is letting him do his thing. And then Jonathan Winters comes on, an old school comic. So the three of them, are on this thing. And I'm sitting there and literally for an hour and a half, I'm supposed to be writing for an hour and a half. I'm sitting here searching now for more appearance of these guys on the Johnny Carson show, seeing these guys. And Johnny Carson made an unbelievable statement. Jonathan Winters and Johnny Carson were friends. And during the interview, what really attracted me was he kept saying things like when we were at dinner the other night or at the party last year, and so you very rarely, by the way, and people would always say how Johnny Carson didn't speak much about relationships and didn't have a lot of personal, personal relationships. But what touched me tremendously was that these two guys who were very professional and very much like I'm a guest on this famous person's show, this famous talk show, but you could tell that there was something there, that they had this long-term friendship. And Johnny Carson was very gracious in giving his friend his stage. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. He gave Jonathan yeah. Winter the stage. And at the end of the show, Johnny Carson said, the best thing I did today 
was get out of the way. Wow. Right? That's wow. great, isn't it? He That's said, big. the best thing I Huge. do was I got out of the way and let them do their thing. So when I think of my friendships with Michael Strahan in particular, we met in the most random, unplanned way. I mean, our mutual friend of ours, Bobby Brown, the makeup artist, the makeup magnet, Bobby Brown, she and I were on today's show together. And she lived in Montclair, she still does, she lives in Montclair, Stray was living in Montclair at the time. And she invited me to the Fresh Air Fund at Central Park at the old tavern on the green. Yeah. I'm dating myself. <laughs> and so she said, hey, Ian, come to this charity event. Sure, I'm, come to this table. And I sat next to this big black dude who obviously played sports. And I didn't know his name. I didn't recognize him. And I know this is weird for, I'm, I'm an avid sportsman. I just didn't know him. And we had this great conversation. And we enjoyed talking about golf, okay? Because we both love golf. And he's a big golfer. And so... We spent our dinner talking about that, and we exchanged numbers, and we said, let's get together and play. Once again, I didn't know who he was. So that night, my brother said, hey, you know, what's going on? We talked every day. You know, what'd you do today? I said, well, I was at this dinner with Bobby, and uh, I met this guy named uh, Mike Strand, I think. Strand? He's like, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. He's like, wait, wait, wait. Mike, what? does he play football? I said, yeah, he's a football player for the Giants. That's it, the Giants. Right, right. I wasn't sure what the Jets or the Giants. And he said, are you talking about Michael Strahan? I said, oh, that, that's it. Strahan. And so like a, <laughs> right. he's like, Ian, you know who that is? I said, I have no idea who that is. He was like, Ian, that's Michael Strahan. The so, man. The man. So funny story. So my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, we were, season started. And I, so he and I had started playing golf and hanging out with each other. Okay. Because we liked each other. I still didn't understand who he was. And then my wife and I were watching the game. The season started. So we're watching the game. And he tackles, he sacks the quarterback. And he does his stomp out dance where, you know, he flexes his muscles. And, and he was ferocious. And my wife looked at me and was like, you're hanging out with this guy? <laughs> and I'm like, babe, this is not the guy I know. Right, this is the guy I talked to, right? No, wait, this is, this is, I've never seen him like this. He is nice. He's very soft-spoken, blah, blah, blah. And so, so that was my introduction to the other life that he led. And uh, we've been friends ever since. We've gone, helped each other through tough times and through good times. We are as close as ever, and he's like a brother to me. And relationships are important to me. The sad thing about life is that, unfortunately, things are so fast-paced that you don't get a chance to not only form relationships but truly develop them and to truly appreciate them and i was watching james baker speak at 41's funeral about their friendships and about so heartfelt right and i just love how he was talking about his friend he wasn't talking about the president he was talking about his friend and how he broke down because at the end of the day strip away all of our accolades and titles and money and stuff like that at the end they were human beings and when you can form a bond with another human being that has nothing to do with all this outside white noise, that's a very special thing. And people don't establish those kind of friendships anymore. And I make a point now, by the way, of calling up my friends who, by the way, we're still close. We just don't speak as much. I'll call them up and just say, dude, I'm just checking in. What's going on? There's no, no agenda. Don't need anything. I know you don't want, but I just want to like hear your voice. So friendships are very important to me and meaningful. And I'm a very loyal friend and I'm with you. If we're in it, we're in it. That's just the kind of guy I am, and I've always been that way, and so I appreciate these kinds of things. Yeah, that's very Cancerian of you. Cancers are usually very, you know, very, very committed and dedicated. Yeah. <laughs> I should say, by the way, 
my social media if you want to follow me since you mentioned my instagram is at dr ian smith spell the doctor out i-a-n smith and if you want to join one of our free workout plans go to facebook the clean 20 use the numbers two zero and join the group yes and we'll repeat that i always do it at the end but we'll repeat it again all right, so we're going to jump into yes or BS. Okay, I just answer yes or BS. You answer yes or BS. If you want to expound, you can. If you don't, we move on. Okay. Number one, Dr. Ian Smith prefers wearing the goatee. Yes. <laughs> I don't do as often as I want, but okay. yes, I prefer it. Okay. Number two, weight loss is primarily psychological. Yes, absolutely. Weight loss is 80% mental and 20% physical. There are tons of great weight loss plans out there. There are thousands of good plans. It's not the plan. It's where your mind is. And that's why my book in 2020 will be Mind Over Weight. And it's all mental. You are you already two two years ahead. You got a book coming out in 19. You got one coming out in 20. That's what I do. Writers write. That's what Stephen King said. Writers write. Number three. Ah. In life, shooting your shot is always the right choice. Oh, my goodness. What can I say above yes? <laughs> Hell yes. <laughs> you better believe it. I told my kids who play my tennis. says I shoot my shot too much. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I told my kids when they play, they play tennis. I said, listen, as long as you hit the right shot, you're going for those, for the baseline, you're going for the corners. As long as you hit going for the lines and you miss it, that's okay. But you hit the cross-court shot. That was the right shot. Always take the right shot. You may not make it, but you took the right shot. So 100%. Always take your shot. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Number four. I know you answered this, but I just, it's a shocking thing. So I want to bring it out here. The number one status symbol for men is settling down and starting a family. BS. (laughs) BS. BS to that. There was, what, what book was it? It was one of your books where you were saying that. The Truth About Men? The Truth About Men. You were saying that that was actually higher on the totem pole for things that men want than you would expect. That wasn't my study. I was reporting on a study. Okay. I was reporting on a study that that's what it said. But I don't think so. No, that's not my opinion. By the way, that's a great thing. I'm happy to be in that place in my life, but I'm equally happy of where I was before. I don't think life is about seasons. Life is about seasons. And so the biggest problem is that some people don't accept and appreciate all of their seasons and they want to get stuck in the season. I don't want to be out in clubs, running around in clubs at this age. I'm happy to go home, to see my kids, to cook dinner with them, and then to put them to bed. And my wife and I sit there and watch HGTV, you know, Island Bargain Hunters. Right. Or Downton Abbey. I mean, that's what I love to do if I'm not binging on Netflix. Right. (laughs) All right. Number five. Ah, Well, we actually already touched this before I asked you, but Dr. Ian K. Smith will produce his own program for television in 2020 yes yes yeah we just spoke on it the detective yeah private investigator yes i want to do that as a netflix series excellent number six the ancient nine will be turned into a screenplay written by dr seku gathers That's called shooting well, a shot. Well, well, anyway. <laughs> well, I'm not in charge of that. Well, let right, me answer that. Right, so, right. so the way it works is a producer <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, uh, yes. has bought the option. Producers so bought the option. They bought the so option. They, they decide. And then they decide kind of who the team is. So yeah, yeah. You, you have a chance. You have a chance. I have a chance. So who right, knows? But right, yes, right. You have a, you, it's possible. 
<laughs> hey, listen, if you can write it and, and put it down, you right. got it. You got a shot just like anybody else. You got to believe it. All right. Number seven. <laughs> that was funny. Number seven. Nonfiction is much easier to write than fiction. True. Yes. Because nonfiction is typically linear and you follow research and it's the thought processes are logical. And, and when you're writing fiction, it's completely creative, particularly my genre, which is thriller slash mystery. You got to make sure that the continuity is right. You got to make sure that you're leaving enough that from chapter two that comes back up in chapter 46 that keep track of everything. Yes. Writing nonfiction is easier. Number eight, a critical key to happiness involves the act of giving. 100%. The feeling you get, and I know it's hard for people who don't have a, who think that they don't have a lot to give to conceptualize giving, but giving does not always mean a monetary give. Giving is spending time with people, listening to people, being a sounding board for people, small gestures, even speaking to people, getting off of an airplane and saying hi to the cleaners or the transport people that are sitting there waiting, just saying hi to them. Think about how many people just walk by them like they're part of the furniture. And I do that. And you know what? They are shocked when I do that. <laughs> it's almost like a custom. Right. Because they're right. like, what is he saying to me? Like, like he's talking. Yeah. I just say, hey, how you doing? Right. And not just like, hey, how you doing? Right. Like, I'm. And really I'm mean it. I mean it. How you, how, how's everything? Like, you know, we can't have a 10 minute conversation, but I'm willing to sit there and listen to your answer. Hey, what's going on? How's, how's everything going? To see the way people react to that is spectacular. <laughs> you know? But yeah. even like if you go to like a restaurant. So one of these, you know, like a Pret-a-Manger or something like that. And you, and you say to the person, hey, how's it going today? They're completely taken Flustered. off guard. Yeah. Flustered. Flustered. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number nine. Last one. You don't have to answer this if you don't want. Dating for 14 years is a recipe for a successful marriage. Well, I only have the option of yes or BS. <laughs> there are people that have said yes, it's BS. Yeah. <laughs> you know, combinations. I think it's situational. I really do. I think that, you know, one thing about dating for 14 years is you develop friendship. And friendship, I think, is the foundation for a good marriage. And I think that all marriages have their challenges. And I think that the reason why marriages, not, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why some marriages fail and sub-succeed is because the foundation isn't good. If you have a cracked foundation, then when the building falls, there's nothing to, you know, but when you have a solid foundation, you can rebuild. Right. And so, so I think that if you date that long and you develop a real friendship, I think it is a good indicator of your ability to weather the storms that all marriages, I don't care who you are, all marriages have storms. I think you can weather them better. Okay. I have a good friend of mine, not like you 14, but he, he, he dated for eight years. Part of it was he was going through residency and the whole thing and he didn't want to get married. But, you know, they have a super strong relationship. And I always joke with his wife and say, you know, you're the most patient woman I've ever met. Cause <laughs> this brother made you wait eight years because she was ready from like year two, you know. But he was very focused on, you know, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to do it. And are you if you're with me, you're with me. Some people enter the institution of marriage prematurely. I believe that. OK. Yeah. It's, I don't believe, and I believe I, that to my grave. I will say this, that there is no stop clock on when you have to decide that it's right for you. You have to organically decide that this is the time for you to do it. That's what happened to me. Now, people didn't believe me, by the way. They didn't believe me. No, my best friend, straight in, my brother, they didn't believe me, but I said, okay, I'm ready. 
because it just happened to me. I just felt it. There was nothing. Yeah. I can't pinpoint and say that I saw something, someone said something to me. There was no pressure. I just felt like this was the time and I went and did it. No fanfare. No, I just went and did it because it was the right time for me. Had I done it when it was not the right time for me, I don't think it would have worked. And I think that a lot of people do that. And they do it because someone says, you know, there's an expiration date on this relationship unless you put a ring on it. And you know what? If I'm a woman, you don't want a ring from someone who is not ready. A pressure ring. No, it's a pressure ring. It's not good, man. I'm telling you. Now, if you need to go on another relationship, that's fine. Because I respect what you need. And I'm not feeling that need, but, <laughs> but what you don't want is that person who you drag into a situation and that person is not ready. And this isn't just about marriage, by the way, this is about life in general, you know, is that you, if you're going to do something with someone, you're going to partner in some way, the person's got to be all in with you. That's just how it works. I think. Yeah, no, for sure. That's a good place to end. And I'll say that, you know, similarly, I, I'm very appreciative that when I reached out, you were willing to partner in this process and you were 100% committed. You were on time. I thank you for agreeing to sit down and, and talk to the people and give them, some, give them some of that truth prescription. It's very important. You know, I appreciate, I didn't know you before this, but I appreciate what you're trying to do. And I think that, you know, I've been reasonably successful in my life. And I think that part of being successful, part of the obligation of being successful is also to be a catalyst for other people's success. And it may be inconvenient. It may not make sense to you necessarily, but giving someone time and, and energy, I think, is the least that we can do. And once again, that gets back to the whole human factor that people kind of get caught up in their titles and their material success, and they just don't behave like just good human beings. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. You know, I do that. You know, I try to do as much as I can. I mean, I have limited time, but, you know, people help ask me questions on Instagram. I try to. You know, a guy hit me the other day about his mother's 400 pounds in Cleveland and he's at wit's end. And I respond to these people. And it's you. It's not a marketing company. No, people, no, people no, no. should know it's him. It's responding. always me. Always me. But I just think that that's part of your obligation. Life is short. Life is finite for all of us. And I think that you have to appreciate as much as one of my things you say on my Instagram, I always talk about living life on full blast. And I mean that. And back to 41, you know, the stories I love of, of, is how voracious and vigorous he was. And, you know, jumping out of planes at when he got old. Seriously. <laughs> at 90 or whatever. At 90. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he really, they said, you know, great sportsman, played tennis. He really liked to have fun driving his boat too fast. <laughs> right. I mean, right. I just, I just think that you got to give it your all so that when you reach the end and we all will reach the end, if you know that you're reaching the end, you can look back and say, man, this was a great ride. Right. No regrets. I had a great ride doing this thing. And I think that happens to all of us. I don't care how many millions or billions you have. You cannot take it with you. It can't go into the ground with you. But what can happen is you can leave a legacy of greatness and, and what you've done for other people. And that's what I try to do in my life every day. I don't always succeed, but but I try. Dr. Ian, let the people know how they can connect with you. Just give us that Instagram again, Facebook, any other you know, ways they can reach out to you and, and become part of the, the cipher of wellness <laughs> that is Dr. Ian K. Smith. Yeah, so my Instagram is at Dr. Ian Smith. Spell the doctor out, I-A-N Smith. On Twitter, it's Dr. Ian Smith, D-R Ian Smith. And on Facebook, you can join our group. It's called The Clean 20. The numerals two zero and the ancient nine, the novel. If you want to try to win that five thousand cash, go to our page, the ancient nine, spelled nine out. 
And I'll just say something quick about the Clean 20. The reason I really like this book is because, you know, you have all of these, you know, health people out there talking about how to eat clean. And usually it's eating clean and spending a thousand dollars a week. This book is for anybody. Anybody can pick this book up, read it. It has recipes in there that are affordable. You can eat cheese. You can eat pasta. If you follow the program and lose lose this 20 pounds in, in uh, I think, 20 days. Is that right? 10 no, pounds in 20 10 days. 10 pounds in 20 days. There you go. So that's it. All right. Dr. Ian, thank you so much. I'm going to sign off as I always say, the truth will set you free if you let it. <laughs>